something important to do to stay home. And I thought, you know what, can you think of anything more important to do than to come and thank God and to praise Him for who He is and what He's done. So, so get used to it. I like it, get a little hanky going on there right there, good, I like that. And this weekend I have the uh, privilege of officiating at two weddings and it's with this in mind and also the passage in Luke that we're going to examine that I share the following story. The story is told of Edna who as a new bride moved into a small home on her husband's ranch in Wyoming and she put a shoebox on a shelf in her closet and asked her husband never to touch it. For 50 years Uncle Jack left the box alone until Aunt Edna was old and she was dying and one day he was putting their affairs in order. He found the box and thought it might hold something important, so he opened it. And in it he found two doilies and $82,500 in cash. He took the boxer and asked about the contents and he said, What's, what is this? And she said, well, my mother gave me that box the day that we were married. And she told me to make a doily to help ease my frustrations every time I got mad at you. Well, Uncle Jack thought, wow, that's great. You know, in 50 years, there's only two doilies. He said, well, what about the $82,500 in cash? And she said, oh, that's from the other doilies I sold. (laughs) You know, the point is, now there's a woman who understands how to turn the lemons into lemonade. You know, and to focus her attention and her efforts in a positive direction. And today in our ongoing study through Luke's Gospel, we come to a passage that asks the question, is your investment growing? Is your investment growing? Turn with me to Luke chapter 19, where we find this account, starting with verse 11. Luke 19, starting with verse 11, we read these words. And while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And it came about that when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be an authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Your your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, your mina which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. And you take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow." And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then then why did you not put the money in the bank and having come, I would have at least collected interest? And he said to the bystanders, take the money away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. In this passage that talks about investments, I was reminded each month as Linda and I get statements on various accounts that we have, you know, and they give you an update on where you stand. Some of you may, you know, recognize it as an IRA account or some portfolio that you have and they send monthly statements and, you know, and you want to look at the statement and basically find out, you know, was it a good month or did it go up or did it go down? Did it stay the same? What did it do? And, and it's a constant reminder of these investments that are out there. What are they doing? How are they working? Are they producing a positive uh, investment as far as, you know, where these monies have been placed? And the question is raised at that time is, you know, is our investment growing? Is how we're investing it, is it a wise investment or not? 
And we all understand in the material world how those investments work. And yet at the same time, many, and maybe if any of us, ever stop to think about the fact that in the spiritual world, those investments are similar. That there is an investment account that we should be monitoring on a regular basis to see whether or not the investment is paying off or paying dividends, as we would like to say. You know, in this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 19, 11 through 27, it's a passage that helps us to address the question from a spiritual realm. We've ha- we, we have to ask ourselves the same thing, and that is this. Is our investment growing? And to understand it, we're going to go through it and look, first of all, at the reason that uh, we're told that Jesus gives this parable. He says, and while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So we're told right away that the crowd that was listening, the disciples and also to the bigger crowd that was there, they were, while they were listening to these things, there's a connection between what we had just studied in the first 10 verses of Luke that talked about Zacchaeus and what they were hearing was, you know, that Jesus... Jesus had touched the life of this man who was a hated tax gatherer and he had been an extortionist who stole money from people and basically he had come to recognize how guilty he was before God. He, he, he owned up to that. My bad, you're right. I'm busted. I'm guilty. He repented from it. There was evidence of his repentance and that he stood up in front of the crowd and said, hey, you know what? Since I've been stealing from all of you, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to pay you all back. And whatever else I have, I'm going to give to the poor. And, and he, was, he was shouting that, you know, that his life was no longer the same. And as people were standing around and they're watching this, it's like, wow, look at what happened to Zacchaeus. Look what Jesus has been doing. And then to hear him say, today salvation has come to your household. You can imagine the excitement and the enthusiasm that was going on in this crowd that, you know, something special was going on. And they had seen it on a regular basis as Jesus continued to touch people physically and to heal them and to touch them spiritually and change the most heinous people, hated people in their culture to become people who are sensitive to what is right before God. And they were excited about all this. And the reason for the story, this parable, and a parable is basically taking things that the audience would know from a commonplace occurrence or an event and turning it into a spiritual truth in order to be able to teach uh, the, the spiritual principles that Jesus wanted to get across. So he would take something that they were familiar with. We see it in the sower and the seed for example. We see it in other parables. They took, he took something familiar and he made it into an opportunity to teach about a spiritual principle or truth that he's going to lay out for us in this passage. See, they supposed that the, the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They had been whipped up into a frenzy. It was Passover time, and as you can imagine, it was always heightened during the Passover because every time the Jews from all over the place went into Jerusalem, it reminded them of how God had freed his people from the Egyptian uh, slavery and captivity. And it was a reminder that, you know what, we were once free people, and now here we are under bondage to the Romans. And so they had an excitement and enthusiasm about the fact they were 17 miles away from Jerusalem. They saw these great words. They saw these great deeds. They heard Jesus teaching. They saw him touching lives. They saw him healing people. They saw the blind people seeing and dead people being raised and, and, and sinners being, you know, taken from being dead to God to alive to God. And they were on their way to Jerusalem. And you can imagine the fever pitch and the excitement and the enthusiasm that, hey, you know what? We're going in and taking over. And these multitudes of people that were following Jesus were excited about going up to Jerusalem. And finally, God's deliverer had arrived. And think about it. Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. And he goes back to the prophecy in Daniel 7, where there was one who was coming who would deliver his people from from their captivity and from the oppression of those around him. And Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And they're walking into Jerusalem going, now it is time, our time. It's our time has arrived. And they were wrong. And Jesus used this time in order to teach them that no, it isn't time. At least not the time you think that it is. Now remember, Jesus had often been telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem not to establish an earthly kingdom. I'm going to Jerusalem to fulfill the predetermined plan and the will of God that I've come not only to seek and to save that which was lost, but Mark 10.45, I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I'm going into Jerusalem. I will be taken by my enemies. I will, be, I will suffer. I will die. I will raise again. And then I'll meet you in Galilee and we'll continue on according to the plan of God. 
So he took, you know, the, the word of God, and you can imagine the, the prophecies that I'm thinking about, like Zechariah 14. Listen to these words and put yourself in the position of a Jew who's in that culture, who sees what's going on, and on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light, no cold, and no frost. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day will be one Lord in his name, the only name. His authority, the only authority. And those who are familiar with scripture realize that, you know what, that day was coming. And unfortunately, they, like so many of us, took that scripture or those verses out of context and they didn't fully understand and appreciate what God's timing was. And so he told the parable to clarify God's plan and correct their wrong thinking. And that's exactly what God's word continues to do even to this day. And that is this. God's word gives clarity when we are often confused. If you're confused about something in life, I would challenge you, encourage you, I would implore you to go to the Word of God to find clarity. A lamp under our feet, a light under our path. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. You know, we need to go to the Word of God for a clarity as far as our beliefs and our principles and what we think is right or wrong. It is amazing to me how many people I have conversation with who say some of the craziest things that somehow or another come from God. And you go, where do you find that in the Word of God? And if what you tell me comes from God, but what I find in the Word of God conflicts with what you're telling me is coming from God, then we have a dilemma on our hands, and that is this. Do I believe what you think came from God, or do I believe what I know has come from God in the clarity of His Word? Now, granted, there are going to be things that we don't really know for sure, and we just trust God and we step back. We don't impose our, you know, our beliefs or our viewpoints that aren't clearly explained in Scripture. We allow God to work in the hearts of people as He desires to work. But oftentimes, there is clarity in the Word of God. I spoke to a man this past week who wants to leave his wife and his children, and he's never been closer to God. And I just want to drop kick him into, you know, into I don't know where, but just bend over and let me show you God, you know. <laughs> you know, a little, you see that, oh, there's lights and, you know, look at all that. You know, but it's like, you know, where, where do you get that? Because in the word of God, God hates divorce. In the word of God, God says, you know, you make a commitment for a lifetime. In the word of God, God wants you to be a godly husband and a godly father. He wants you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. He wants you to train up your children in the way they should go. Don't tell me that God is telling you to leave your wife and kids. That's not God and that's not his word. You're foolish. And so we go to the word of God for clarity. That's just one example of, I'm sure, many that you've experienced even in your own life and even in your own choices that you've made because you want to do what you want to do and not do what's right before God. And so God's word brings clarity in those areas. We have got to adopt the word of God, the Bible, as our standard for our behavior. Period. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. Is what I am thinking, is what I am doing in line with correct behavior. Think about it. The Word of God is inspired by God and profitable for teaching what is right and for correction, correcting us when we're wrong. We are now going to see a perfect example of how Jesus is going to correct the wrong thinking of his day by telling a story that will help them understand the big picture, which is God's picture, which is God's plan, which is God, what is God is going to do. And so if, if you recall, I mentioned that a parable is a story that takes commonplace or common events and turns them into a spiritual truth for the purposes of teaching what is right before God. Those who were in the audience that day would understand very clearly when Jesus begins this parable and he says, A certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and return. As soon as he said that, they would immediately have recalled events that were taken, you know, right from the Palestine Post-Gazette, the Jerusalem Wall Street Journal. They were, there were events that were, that were known to the people that were listening to this. And in 4 BC, when Herod died, Herod gave his kingdom, a portion of his kingdom, to one of his sons, Archelaus. Archelaus, in 4 BC, in order to get the title king, had to go to 
Rome and invoke upon Rome that he wanted the title king, not just tetrarch, because it was something that had to do with, you know, he wanted to feel like he was a king, but he couldn't have that title without Rome blessing this decision. So Archelaus leaves and goes to Rome, a distant country, in order to beseech upon Rome to give him the title. Well, the people heard that he was going to Rome to be called king, and they didn't want another king over them. So 50 delegates you know, came together and said, we're going to follow him to Rome, and we're going to go before Caesar and say, we don't want this guy to be our king, and because he's not a good guy. There was a time where he killed 3,000 people in an insurrection that had occurred and dumped their bodies in the temple, and the Jews were upset with them and didn't want anything to do with them. So they said, we don't want this guy to be our king. So they went to Rome, 50 of them, to plead their case. Well, when they got to Rome, there was eight or 9,000 Jews who were living in Rome at the time, they told the story to all of them. So 9,000 people show up before Caesar and say, we don't want this guy to be our king. And so Caesar, trying to balance all of this, says, you know what, I'm not going to call you king. If you prove that you're worthy of it later on, I'll call you king. But until then, you're just tetrarch, and that's the title that you have. And that's the historical significance of what's going on. So as these people are all there, and Jesus says a certain nobleman went away to a distant land to receive a kingdom and then to return, they would have immediately thought of those historical events and put it all into the context. And now, instead of Jesus talking about Archelaus... He's going to use this common event to tell them about himself, to tell them about his noble birth, to tell them about his investment in his disciples, to tell them about him going to a distant land and receiving his kingdom. And when he receives his kingdom, that he will return again and call into account those who were away while he was gone as to what they did with the investment that he had given them. And that's the story that is used here with great significance. Now, we have a greater understanding of what was going on because we have the complete word of God at our disposal where now we can fill in the pieces. They in no way, shape, or form could have ever understood all of the significance of what was being mentioned. But now we can, and we're going to see that as we go through it. So the reason for the parable was very simple. It was to give clarity in an area where they had confusion. They supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, and that wasn't the case. So now we go to the reception of the kingdom as found in verse 12. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. So we're told in verse 12 of the place in Archelaus's situation. He went to Rome, which was a distant land. In the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, he went and ascended into heaven where he received the kingdom that God had given him. Now, if you question that, go back to Daniel chapter 7 and look at verses 13 through 14 where we find the title, the Son of Man, which Jesus had already called himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so in Daniel chapter 7, for those who are just taking notes and want to look later, just jot it down and look at it. But he said, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancients of days, who is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son, Jesus, the Savior, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which, which uh, will not in any way be destroyed. And so when we look at our Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we see a picture of the fact that the place that Jesus ascends to is heaven. He is given a kingdom And the whole purpose or the plan as we see this, the purpose of it is that he would receive for himself this kingdom. We see that in Daniel 7, Revelation 11, 15, also Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. He goes to heaven, he receives a kingdom for the purpose of the kingdom is given to himself. The plan of God is laid out in verse 15. And we're told that it came about that that when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered the slaves to come and give an account as to what they were doing while he was gone. So Jesus clarifies as we look at this that he is coming and returning again. Turn to Acts chapter 1 and see that we're not confused, but the disciples continue to be confused about the coming of God's kingdom, and they weren't sure about the timing or when it would be established. In Acts chapter Uh, In Acts chapter 1, they were asking these things concerning the kingdom of God in verse 6. They said, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? 
And then he ascended into heaven. Well, in verse 8, we're told that we are to be witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there intently looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from, hev- from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In Acts chapter 3, we see the same thing again, where they're asking the question, when is the, what is God's timing? When is this all going to happen? In verse 19, he says of chapter 3 of the book of Acts, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of our Lord. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So we look at this and understand that Jesus ascends into heaven after his death, after his resurrection, he ascends into heaven. It is from heaven that he will return again. In the meantime, he has received the kingdom that has been promised to him. And one day he will return. We see that in verse 15 of Luke chapter 19. He's going to return. He's going to come again. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves and and, and the focal point of this particular passage is, what are our responsibilities or what is the responsibility of God's people or his servants while we wait for him to return? What are we, you ever wonder, like, what's life all about? What's, what am I supposed to do? What is it that will bring purpose and meaning and fulfillment to my life? We run around and we do this on our jobs and we get promoted and we buy these material things and we think that it's to pursue this education or this career path or, or buy this house or to have this many children. And, you know, we have all these goals and dreams and plans. You know, what's our purpose? Well, our greatest purpose is laid out before us, and the purpose is that Jesus lays out very clearly, while he is away, he explains what you and I are to be doing. And he says, in the meantime, he called his servants to himself, and he deposited with them... This investment, in this particular case, we're told that he is giving to them minas. He called ten ten slaves, gave them ten minas in verse 13, and said, do business with this until I return. What is your purpose? What is my purpose? My purpose is to do business with the investment that God has given to me. What is that investment? See, this parable is often confused with the parable of the talents, and it's not anywhere close to the parable of the talents. It's two different parables. The parable of the talents talks about, you know, giving different, you know, different abilities to different people to do different things. One was given ten, one was given five, one was given one. But in this parable, it's very clear that God gives to every one of us the same investment or the same deposit. Joe Schmo in the front row... And Billy Graham or, you know, Calvin or, or Martin Luther or whoever we want to throw out, every one of God's people have been given the same deposit to do business with until Jesus comes back or until he calls us home. Now we need to understand, well, what is that deposit? It's the same thing. And it's not money. Because we're all given the same thing. And all of us haven't been given the same amount of money. We haven't been given the same physical resources. We haven't been given the same talents. That's the parable of the talent. It's a whole different subject. We've all been given one thing. And you know what that one thing is? We have all been entrusted and deposited within God's people the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians Chapter 9. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll see how this all works as to our responsibility before God while we wait for our king to return or to call us home. 1 Corinthians 9 starting with verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a, listen, a stewardship entrusted, there's the word entrusted or deposited to me. 
What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He says, For though I am a free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those under the law is under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. He's saying that I have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we see Paul writing the same words to the church at Thessalonica, where he says that I have been entrusted with the gospel. You have been entrusted with the gospel. And each one of us have a responsibility to see if that investment is growing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be what? Entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Similar passages are found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, chapter 6, verse 20, and also in Titus, 2 Timothy 2, 2, we see the same thing. So the point is very simple. Go back to Luke chapter 19. We are commanded to invest the investment that Christ has made in us. We are to invest the gospel in the lives of others. It is not a matter of talents or gifts. It is a matter of investment. Now, the question is, why should we do it? Why should we do it? Well, one is because if we love God, we'll obey His commandments. That's always the basic reason why we do it. But also, we need to do it because we need to recognize that, you know what? In verse 15 of chapter 19 of Luke, and it came about when he returned... After receiving the kingdom, he ordered that his slaves to whom he had given the money, in our case would say whom he has made this investment, he called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. I don't know if we fully appreciate this, but there is a day that is coming for all of God's people where we will be called to account to give an answer to what we have done with the gospel that has been entrusted to us. Think about this. To you and I who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ and received Him as our Savior, been born again by the will of God, God has entrusted to us the gospel, the very plan of God, the very love of God found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Him crucified and resurrected. To us it has been granted the knowledge of the mystery of God. We have a responsibility to share with all who come into our path. And whether they listen to us or not is not the issue. Our responsibility is to share with them God's love for them. Also, God's wrath as far as judgment is concerned. And their great need to repent and to turn from sin. And to trust in Jesus, the only Christ, the only Savior, the only Messiah the world will ever know. There is no other way that people will ever be made right with God. Other than putting their faith and trust and hope in Jesus, Him crucified and resurrected we are going to give an account we have got to answer just as if you have a financial planner or whatever and you get monthly statements and you say hey listen you know what every month the investment that i entrusted to you to invest is going downhill give me an answer an explanation or give me some reason why that investment should stay with you instead of moving it to another firm or another company or another individual you are going to have to give an account on a greater more significant level We have got to give an account of what we did with the gospel that has been entrusted to us. Do we really understand that? Do we really realize the severity and the importance of making sure that we are busy investing this account, this entrusting, this stewardship? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to see in context what we're talking about. Paul writes in the first verse that we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is being torn down, he's saying that, you know what, we live in these temporary houses, these bodies that are being torn down. Hey, every time that you get up, every time that I get up, we know that these bodies are just fading away. Every time, you know, I I can't do the things I used to do. I have aches and pains in places I never even knew I owned. You know, I got there's more hair in the shower than on my head, you know, and the hair that's there is now white or gray or whatever. It's like, you know, God is reminding us every day these earthly tents are being torn down. 
You know, and you don't even have to have some catastrophic disease or illness to understand that. It's just every day God reminds us, hey, you know what? You're passing through this life, this body, this temporary, and there's a life that's to come that's for eternity. And he says in light of all this, he says that whether we're at home and go to verse 9, whether we're at home or whether we're absent, we're to be pleasing to him. That should be our goal, our ambition. For we must all, here we go, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one of us, speaking of believers, must be, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. And he goes on and he talks about in verse 17, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, old things pass away, all things become new. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And listen, and he entrusted to us or he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the task, the wonderful privilege of being used by God to tell people how to be reconciled to God, how to be made right to God, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us, what? Entrusted to us the word of reconciliation. He has entrusted to you and me who have trusted in Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice, therefore, we are his ambassadors. We are his ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. With that in mind, is your investment growing? Is your investment growing? Do you tell other people of their need to be reconciled with God? Do you tell them that God's plan is that they repent of their sin and that they turn and trust in Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of their sin, believing on His death and His resurrection? Trusting Him as Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask something that's a very personal question, but it's one that needs to be asked at this time. Who was the last person that you told God's plan of salvation to? Who was the last person you shared this ministry of reconciliation with? When was the last time as an ambassador that you realized your responsibility was to share with the person you work with, the person you sit next to in school, that you play ball with, the person in your family, that person in your neighborhood. Who was the last person that you shared this truth with? And and if you sit there and say, I can't remember ever sharing this with anybody, and I can't remember sharing it recently with anybody, then I will be so bold to say that your investment is not growing, it is not producing dividends, it is not having, it has no results. And I would rather tell you now than have you stand before the Lord and give an account for something you've never done and be held accountable because my responsibility as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call these things to our attention, not just to yours but mine as well. And I'm equally convicted as I read this, as I study this, as I consider these ramifications for my own life. You know what? I need to get busy in sharing with people the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk about we're committing to, committed to reaching the world with the word of God. But we can only do that if every one of us as individuals are just as committed to reach our world, our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, outermost parts of the world. Yes, we can do all of that. But you know what? There is nothing that will ever take the place of sharing with that one person that God continues to bring into your life that you have developed a relationship with. How can you not share what God's plan is for them when you realize if they don't turn from sin and trust in Christ, they will be eternally condemned before God and experience the wrath of God we get deceived by the enemy it says well don't make don't offend anybody I'll tell you right now there is nothing more offensive than not telling somebody the truth when you know it and you can share it and you keep it to yourself that is the most offensive heinous thing any one of us can do that would be like somebody who would have a cure for my specific type of cancer saying I don't want to bother you with the remedy bother me all you want 
but we get deceived into thinking, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. What's our purpose? The whole reason we're still here is to be ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation. And my conviction in my own life is, Chuck, you know what? Are you really committed to doing that? We need to get creative. I love our CD and tape ministry and the people that we're reaching through it. I love the opportunities I get to go speak at different functions. I love the creativity of a guy who says, I'm having a barbecue to invite people over so someone here, you can come and share the gospel of what Jesus has done in your life, how he's transformed your life and present God's plan of salvation to every one of the people that I invite. We all need to be doing that. And we need to be doing it not on those scale, that, that, that type of scale necessarily, but don't you work with people every day? Don't you have people in your family that you have interaction with on a regular basis? Don't you have your neighbor that's right next door that we barely even know in Southern California because, you know, we got fences that are built all over the place and we come in and we push the garage door button, we shoot straight in the garage, we push it behind us, we run in and we hide in the house. It's like, man, we need to be more open and accessible and exposed. We need to get more creative and go around knocking on doors, inviting people at our home, having a dessert or having a, you know, uh, whatever. I don't care if you've got to play bunko or whatever you've got to do to get people there to have a relationship with people. And some of you are going, bunko, oh my God, he said bunko in church. I, you know, I don't even know what bunko is. <laughs> so you might be right, I don't know. But it's still just something to get people to come together and develop a relationship so you can share the love of God with them and the warning of His coming judgment. You know, think about this. Back to Luke 19. But notice this. Notice the rejection of the citizens. I'm just going to warn you up front, not everybody's going to want to hear this. But his citizens, notice, hated him and sent a delegation after him. Think about Archelaus and these people that went after them. They hated him and said, we don't want this guy to be our king. Well, guess what? The whole world shouts that about Jesus. We don't want him to be our king. Crucify him. Crucify him. Take that name that you put above his cross and take it down. He is not our king. We don't want him as king. And we need to recognize and understand there's two people in the world. There are servants and there are subjects. There are those who have trusted in Christ and there are those who reject him as their king. And they shall crucify him even to this day. We live in a world, and the irony is not beyond me, that says to tolerate everything and everybody and every belief system. They'll tolerate anything in our culture today, but they will not tolerate the name of Jesus. Because he has been given a name above every other name. That it is because he has been given the name that God has given to him and highly exalted him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. You either do it now or you will do it throughout eternity. But you will do it in a place called hell. But you will bow before him. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And the citizens rejected him. We don't want him as king. How about you? Is he your king or not? Because either you want him as king... And have him as king, or you do not. There is no in-between. He forces us to make a decision. Jesus is either received gladly, as we see in the case of Zacchaeus, or he is rejected soundly, as we saw in the case of the rich young ruler. You either receive him, or you reject him. There is no in-between. His coming to this earth causes every man to have to decide. Is he your Lord and Savior, or do you reject him as king? There is no in-between. And that's the essence of this. You know, therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he's Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ to the glory of God. He was made king. He is king forever and ever. And his kingdom will have no end. And his dominion will be everlasting. See, at his return, Jesus will settle accounts. First with his servants on the basis of their investment. And then with the enemies who rejected his kingship. And let's look first at the reward. Notice the reward in verse 16. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. 
And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be, a, be an authority over ten cities. I want to point out to you the credit that he gives. He says, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And I, you know why I love that? Because none of us can save anybody. Period. None of us. All we are are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, trophies of the grace of God that says, you know what, but by the grace of God, there go I, and I turn from sin, I trusted in Christ, and I've been born again by the will of God, not by my own efforts. There's nothing good in me at all, but it's what Christ has declared good in me, and that is Christ within me. And he has given credit and said, it's your mina that has made ten more minas. He didn't even take credit because he knew there was no credit to be taken. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the gospel that's the dynamite or power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Not you, not I, nothing. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You and I have been given the wonderful privilege and responsibility of taking this information and just sharing it with others. And then guess what? And then watching what God does in their life. Not us. Now, we should be, you know, part of the process in that people see our lives and say, wow, there's consistency. We don't want to be hypocritical. We want to be consistent. But at the end of the day, God gets all the glory. God gets all the praise. God gets all the credit because it's not by the will of man or our efforts. It's by the will of God and the Holy Spirit of God who causes dead people to become alive in Christ. So he says, it was your mina. You trusted the gospel in me. I just went out and shared what you have entrusted to me. And you produced this windfall, this, this, this dividend of changed lives. And I want you to notice something that's amazing. The commendation is, well done, good and faithful servant. You know what? Because you are faithful in a very little thing. And let me tell you what God thinks of us sharing the gospel. It's a very little thing. We make it into such a big deal. Oh, I can't do that. It's such a big thing. No, it's a very little thing. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who have called us to darkness, to light, to others around us is a very little thing. Because God does the big thing. He's the one that takes dead people spiritually and makes them alive in Christ. All we do is deliver the message. We're no different than a messenger who is told what to say that goes to a house and says, I've got a message to deliver, and we just read it. It is not a very big thing. Listen, me standing here every week and preaching the truth of God's word is not a very big thing because I don't have any power to change any of your lives, but if I preach the word of God, the spirit of God goes out and his word, God's word, does not return empty or void, but accomplishes the purposes of which he sends it forth. God deals with you on a personal and individual basis. God the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin that you need to repent and turn from. God the Holy Spirit tells you what you need to be doing in order to be obedient to God. And then when you do it, it's all because God did all of that. And all that I am is hopefully a a good and faithful servant in doing what God has called me and gifted me to do. But it's not a very big thing. The big thing is what God does. So, you know, don't get hung up on sharing the gospel. It's not that big a deal. I mean, just tell people what God has done in your life through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Just make sure you tell them they need to repent of sin. And God's answer is to trust in Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and to receive him as Savior. That's the essence of the gospel. The commendation is, if you'll do that, one day when you stand to give an account before God, he says, you know what? And I want you to notice this. The results are totally different. The one who had ten... You know, one, one had ten, one had five. You see, the results aren't a matter of us. It's all up to God. And some of us go, man, I share and I share and I share and I share. And you know what? And, you know, and no one ever trusts in Christ. And then somebody comes along and they share. And that person, after 20 years I've been sharing with them, I've never seen them trust in Christ. Somebody else comes along and they share. And wow, look at that. It's like, man, I got ripped off. Well, <laughs> What is that supposed to mean? You get ripped off. It doesn't matter. You are faithful and God counts you as being faithful. And you know why God does that? So none of us think we're saving anybody. That's why he does it. It's like, so he gets all the credit and all the glory. And the commendation is, well done, good and faithful servant. So he goes to the one, the second says, hey, you know what? You've had, you, now there's five. You made five. Master, look, you made five. He said to him, and the same thing, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful and little. I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. Now, listen. 
This is mind-boggling to me. Think about this. God entrusts us with the gospel. All he asks us to do is to share it with other people. He's the one that does all the work. And then at the end of the day, if we're faithful, he says, I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. What? Seriously? That's what the Word of God says. Think about this. When Jesus returns and establishes his earthly kingdom... We who have been faithful in his service, this side of the eternal curtain now, in our lives now, that stand before him and have done a good job, are going to have an unbelievable responsibility to serve with him during his earthly kingdom and his reign. For sharing the gospel, you may be in charge of ten cities, five cities. I don't understand that, but all I know is this. That's incredible. Now, the world we live in says this. If you do a good job, somehow or another, you should get time off for good behavior. But God's, God's economics is this. If you do a good job, I'm going to give you more to do. More to do. Some of us go, I don't want any more to do. <laughs> You're the one. You're that one. I'm not even doing what I'm supposed to be doing now. Why would I want more to do? That, that's reflected in this one person who, you know, when you look at the, uh, the consequence of this behavior, this one person says, no, I didn't want to do anything. So I used you as an excuse. I just buried this, you know, miner that you gave me. I wrapped it up in a hanky and I just kept it to myself. He says, you know what? Then the one that you have, I'm going to take from you. Though you are still saved, you know, I'm going to remove it from you. And the responsibility, you're not going to have any. And I'm just going, man, you know what? I love what, what this one fellow writes about being rewarded by God. He says, The splendor of the cities committed to them will be far less important than the fact that now they are the vis- viceroys of the Lord and therefore among those closest to Him and thus will always be. They will always have access to Him and be able to speak to Him and tarry in His presence at all times. Their reward is that in the end the Lord will receive them with honors, that they will be privileged to speak and to live with Jesus forever. For heaven does not consist in what we shall receive, whether this would be white robes and heavenly crowns or ambrosia or nectar, but rather in what we shall become, namely the companions of our King. Isn't that great? For sharing the gospel this side of eternity... One day we will be the companions of our king who will go in and out of his presence as we serve and we rule under his authority and under his dominion as he gives us ten or five cities or whatever it is. And then by contrast, we have the person, and and I ask you and you need to ask yourself, which one of these people more closely represent you? Do you think it's the one who will have the ten-fold investment? Five? 100% or are you sitting around on your minas not doing anything you know the message is don't sit on your mina get busy and share the gospel take that investment that God has given us and turn it into an eternal reward that's far beyond our comprehension the magnitude of it I don't even begin to understand but I know what God says and he promised Peter the same he says "What, what would you give up this side of eternity that won't be restored to you a hundredfold in the kingdom of God you and I will be rewarded for simply telling other people about what Jesus Christ has done in our life. And a sobering note as we go on is this. Notice the result of rejection in verse 27. Saying, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. This is the future for all those who reject Christ. It's an, ap- it's an apocalyptic ending. In the book of Revelation, we read these words in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. 
and the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name that is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so often we don't hear much about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the fury of God. But frankly, we need to recognize and understand that that's the fate for all those who reject Him as King. It's a terrifying thing, the Bible tells us, to fall into the hands of the living God for those who reject Him. And so this parable sums up everything that we need to know, that Jesus Christ came in human flesh of noble birth that He was born of a virgin, that He came to this earth in order to fulfill the predetermined plan by the foreknowledge of God. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. He went to the cross having lived a, a perfect life. And He died on the cross because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sin. He died upon the cross. He was buried. And three days later, according to Scripture, He was raised from the dead. The Bible tells us He ascended into heaven from where He will come again to judge the living and the dead. For God's people who trust in His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection, Jesus has given to us and trusted to us the very gospel of Jesus Christ to go into the world as ambassadors to share this with others. And you either have a choice of submitting to this plan of God and trusting Christ as your Savior and becoming a citizen or servant of His voluntarily, or you will reject Him as King for all of eternity, but you will still be subject to Him because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He's Lord to the glory of God. And you're either one or the other. You're either a servant or you're a subject. You're either saved or you're lost. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You're either dead in, d- dead in your sins or alive in Christ. Which one are you? And for those of us who are alive in Christ, I encourage you, I challenge you, I exhort you with, the, with all the energy that I can to get busy sharing the gospel, to fulfill the responsibility of ambassador to those who God has placed in your trust. The greatest news they can ever hear, that if they will repent and trust in Christ, they will be a child of God to those who believe in His name. And the rewards are unfathomable, unthinkable, (laughs) unimaginable, that one day we'll stand before the Lord our God and He'll say to you and I who have proclaimed the excellences of Him, To those around us, well done, good and faithful servant. To you, I will put you in charge of ten cities. To you, five. To you, another. But you will serve and reign with me for all of eternity. Praise God. What a wonderful, wonderful message we have been entrusted to share. Let's get busy doing it. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for your truth. And the question that's asked is, is our investment, this eternal investment, is it growing or is it stagnant? God, I pray that you will stir up our hearts in such a way, a new, a new way, maybe never before has it ever been stirred up this way, to take this word of yours, this ministry of reconciliation, and to be faithful in sharing it with those who need to hear of your great love and also of your wrath and the condemnation for sin, to share with those around us the magnificent love of Jesus Christ who voluntarily gave his life on the cross so that all who believe and trust in Him would be children of God to those who believe in His name. God, thank You for the privilege of serving You, and we look forward to the day we stand before You. May we be found faithful that day. In Jesus' name, amen.